The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. A reading from Isaiah, chapter 56, verses 1 through 8. Thus says the Lord, Keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come and my righteousness will be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this, and the son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, Everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God, who gathers the outcasts of Israel, declares, I will gather yet others to him beside those already gathered. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thank you, Hannah. All right. C.S. Lewis, in his amazing meditation called A Grief Observed, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with this book of his, a lot of times when we think of C.S. Lewis, we think Chronicles of Narnia, and maybe we think mere Christianity. Uh, he's one of those people that his, he just had this incredible intellect. And when you're, when you're reading C.S. Lewis, his thoughts are so organized and they, they, they flow from one to the other in such methodical, logical, reasonable ways. And yet he had this this wit and this whimsy in the way that he did it. But, but you always feel like when you're reading C.S. Lewis that, that he's, he must have been the smartest guy in any room he walked into. A Grief Observed is a completely different kind of book. It is a, uh, he was a professor and uh, these uh, little composition books that students would use to write their year-end compositions. He took four of them. Uh, and wrote A Grief Observed, and he limited himself to those four composition books. And what, the, what that book is about is he was married, and his wife had cancer, and she died. And the book is about his grief over her passing. And he gave himself those four composition books. If you find A Grief Observed, if you've read it, it's got four sections. Those are the four uh, composition books. And in it, he basically just bleeds all over the page what he's feeling. And it's very raw, 
And it's very different from anything else that he's done. And it's, and it's, it's profound. And, and, and one of the things that he says in that about loss is he says, the same thing is never taken away and then given back. And that is a pretty piercing truth. That when we go through loss, what's taken away is never given back in the same way. So we, we miscarry, and then the Lord gives us a child, but that child doesn't remove the pain of the miscarriage. We lose a spouse, and we remarry, but the new marriage doesn't remove the pain of the loss of the spouse, however that spouse was lost. Most of us in this room have been through experiences that have changed us. And if you haven't, you will, because that's how the world works. It's a broken place. We've been through things like transition, loss, struggle, affliction. And these things, they leave us different on the other side. There's no going back. That's one of the things Lewis talks about in this, is how his friends would invite him to come back to the pub to, to spend evenings together talking and smoking their pipes together like they used to do. And he says so beautifully in that book to his wife, when you left, you took my past with you that I can't go back. So what is that for you? What is the earth-shaking transition or change or loss that you've gone through that you look at and you say... There, there is no going back to what happened, to what life was before this. Now it's just, it's a new way of living. It's a new normal, if you could even call it that. A number of years ago, I had one. I had a pretty serious uh, medical crisis uh, that required open heart surgery. And, and it was sudden, and it was unexpected, and it was serious. And in the process of walking through that, I knew... It, it, it became apparent to me in that process that there was going to be no going back to the way that I understood and walked through life before that happened. That was just, it was gone. And now there was a new season, a new path, a new, and there was no point in trying to regain whatever things were before the affliction. The book of Isaiah is a book that is focusing on a very specific season in the life of the people of Israel. And it's, it's a season that, that has a lot of trauma in it, right? They, they've been exiled, they've been defeated. And they've gone through this intense season of discipline and the Lord has been saying to them through the prophet, make no mistake, this season of discipline that you're in is coming from my hand. This isn't the invading armies that are doing this to you. I'm doing this to you. I'm refining you. I'm disciplining you. I'm breaking you of your rebellion and your rejection of me. And throughout that struggle, the Lord is promising to them over and over again that there is going to be a remnant that's going to endure, that's going to thrive. Life is going to rise from the stumps that have been cut down, the forest is going to be green again, even though now it's all just black. 
And the savior of the world is gonna come. And he's gonna deliver them from their iniquity and restore them to God. And we talked about that a lot in depth last week. That magnificent passage from Isaiah 53. And so a question that we have to ask when we look at a passage like this is what is Israel's suffering then? What does their struggle then have to do with us right now? What are the applications that we can draw? And today's passage rings really timely for me. Because a new day is coming, but this new day that is coming for Israel, God tells us people here, needs to be a day that's marked by two things. By justice, righteousness, and also by welcome. Justice and welcome. They're going into a time when justice and obedience to the Lord are going to be essential. And it's also a time where it's going to be incumbent on them to welcome those who are lost in the fallout of war, those who can't go back. And the Lord is telling them, look, when, when, when war descends on a land and then it ends, it, doesn't, it may start with two sides, but it doesn't end with two sides. It ends with a lot of destruction. It ends with a lot of people who are displaced. It ends with people who can't go home again. And people who are adrift and kind of lost in the world. And you may feel that way. I go through seasons where I feel that way, where I feel like I feel adrift right now. And in hard times, when we go through hard times, those are very tempting moments to become narcissists, right? To say, I need to focus on me. I'm going through something hard. I need help. I need comfort. I need people to attend to me. I got to turn inward. I got to take care of what's happening in me. And yet, what this passage of scripture is telling us, and the way God has wired us, is he's saying actually turning outward to care for and help people is actually a path to freedom from the suffering that you're in. And you've experienced this. If you've, if you've ever been on a, a mission trip or you've gone and served people in need, the, one of the, the just refrains of people coming back from stuff like that is they say, I, I know we went to minister to these people in need, but I feel like I'm the one who got ministered to the most. Right? It's because the Lord works in the lives of people who are giving themselves away. Greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. And so this passage is about that. He's telling them, you've been broken, you've been defeated, you're going into a season of rebuilding. And there are people around you, some who are from the opposing side, who are, who are adrift now, and they're looking for a place to be. And in the process of this war and this exile, they've come to believe in your God and they are now without a place. And you are to welcome them. I think it's timely because I know that people have been doing this down through time, but it feels to me like we are definitely in one of those eras where people of faith are really good at drawing lines for who's in and who's out and who we should love and who we should scoff at and who we should want to sidle up next to and who we should just dismiss out of hand. 
It has me thinking this passage about us as a church. I'm thinking a lot about us because we're in this, you're going to just hear this from me a lot over the next three months because I've got two dates in my mind for when we started. One of them was this week, a year ago. This week, a year ago, a group of us got together in the upper school atrium at the old Hickory campus and had our very first meeting. And then the first Sunday in October, we had our first meeting here in the hotel as a Sunday morning worship service. And so for the next three months, I'm going to be talking as though it's our one-year anniversary. So just buckle in for that. It's going to be great. We're all going to do that together. But I think about that. I've been thinking about that a lot for us as a church because this week marks that one year of meeting. And I'm routinely asking the question and praying over the question, who shall we become as a congregation in this city that we love? Because we have some options, right? One is we could become a people who we gather on Sunday mornings, we sing some songs, we hear a sermon, we take communion, we go our way, maybe we go to lunch with each other. And we could just do that. And then our church could be a kind of a commodity, a service offered to the community that you come and you benefit from the commodity that's being offered, whether it's fellowship or songs or worship or a sermon or whatever. But we could do that. We could be a kind of a commodity, a place that we frequent. Uh, for some of us, we say it's an obligation. I, I, I need to fulfill this obligation, like, like going to a movie or getting a massage or attending a class at a community college. Right? It could be that. Or will we be what this passage is calling God's people to be, a true welcoming community of faith where we're hungry to worship the Lord and we're hungry to connect to one another and we're hungry to serve our church and our city and our world. Worship, connect, serve. Worship, connect, serve. That these would be the driving values that are shaping us as a congregation. That we're not saying, okay, we just want a place where we can gather, but really what are we doing to serve and to care for people who are needing a place to belong. It's so easy for the church to become a place that we just work into the rhythm of life, but never really think much about. And I'm guilty of that. I'm guilty of that as a pastor who gets up at between 4.45 and 5.15 on Sunday mornings, and then I go to the Starbucks over at Cool If you ever need me on a Sunday morning, uh, from about 6 to 7 a.m., 5.30, 6 to 7 a.m. I'm over at the Starbucks at Cool Springs every Sunday. And I'm preparing, I'm getting my head in the game, I'm, I'm, I'm looking over things, I'm, I'm praying, I'm drinking a coffee. And, um, but I, I'll confess to you that even as I'm doing that, even as my Sundays are dominated by preparing for church and setting up for church and facilitating and, and being the liturgist and the, and the preacher for church. I, I'll tell you, I can get home at 12.30 in the afternoon and have gone through that whole thing and never once really thought about why we're doing what we're doing. This is what we do. It's Sunday and we do it, right? Now, I will say, I'm about to say in a minute that there actually is value in saying it is Sunday and it's what we do on Sunday. Uh, there's value in that. But maybe you're like me. Maybe you're sitting here and you're like, yeah, it never, I never really thought about when I got up this morning, I'm going to worship the living God today. But here we are. And that is what we're doing. It's so easy for church to become a place that we can just work into the rhythm of our life, never really think that much about. But the biblical model 
for the local church is that the church exists because people need it. People need it. And it's not the facility, the programs, the branding, it's the people. And that means for us that our vibrancy and our effectiveness in our community here in Williamson County has a lot to do with how we regard ourselves as members of this outposts of believers here in this place where there are people all over who need a place to belong. So how do we regard ourselves as a local body of believers here in Cool Springs? Are we welcoming? Are we humble? Are we an inviting, are we a community, uh, do we have a, a culture of invitation, right? And by the way, I think we do. Um, I think we can always do better. But I also know that most of the growth that has happened in this church has been by invitation. It has to be, because you're not driving by our building. You're not seeing our sign, right? Um, it's, it's word of mouth, and I think that's a beautiful way for the church to grow, and that happens. But these are good questions for, for us to ask. Are we people who are respectful of people who think differently? What I'm about to say, I put in parentheses because I'm a little bit of a chicken and wasn't even sure if I wanted to say it or not. But listen, I want to encourage everybody here, look at your social media feed and ask yourself, would I like this person if it wasn't me? Because that's a place where we can be so... sure of ourselves and really so sure of other people who are different from us and their motives and why they do what they do and dismissive and write entire swaths of people off. If, if, if your social media feed involves villainizing cross sections of people that you don't know by name, I just want to say, consider, one, is that conduct worthy of a follower of Jesus Christ who is completely dependent upon mercy and grace to cleanse you of all your sins and unrighteousness. And two, is welcoming. As you get to know people in the church and they make connections with you because they met you on a Sunday morning and they're trying to build a little bit of a community. And so they find you on Facebook or on Twitter or on Instagram. Are they going to find a friendly person? <laughs> Is that okay for me to say? These are things I think about as a pastor. These are things I think about for myself. I begin to compose and delete about 70% of what I put on social media um, because I'm a nine on the Enneagram. <laughs> who do, who, uh, threes are people on the Enneagram who want everybody to like them. Nines are people who want everybody to like everything all the time. And I'm a nine. I just want everybody to like everything all the time, including. But these are things I think about and things I work toward. These are things that I believe are on your minds too. And, and I pray that they will be increasingly because I don't want our legacy as a church to be that we just met on Sundays and never engaged with our neighbors or the poor or the lost or the suffering or the refugee or people who disagree with us. And so this passage, it takes these two things and it says, okay, here's the tension that you live in as a follower of Jesus Christ. You live in the tension of orthodoxy and welcome. You can't get rid of one 
and only have the other. You have to have both, orthodoxy and welcome. You gotta stay true to the teaching of scripture. You gotta stay true to a, a biblical world and life view, but part of a biblical world and life view means that you are welcoming people in who are saying, I, I'm interested in the things of God and I don't have a community and I may not come from where you're coming from, but I'm looking for a place to belong. I want to belong, which means they will not necessarily become just like us. In fact, they probably won't, but that can't be the prerequisite. A few things jump out at me in this passage. There are, these are people, Christians are people, God's people are people who are called to care deeply about righteousness and justice. We're to remain orthodox, bound to scripture. Specifically, this passage says the way it gets at it is to say that they're Sabbath keepers. You saw this in the passage, right? There's a people that honor my Sabbath. What does that mean? Yes, it means that we are to honor the Sabbath day and to keep it holy. It's one of the 10, right? This is one of the 10 commandments. Honor the Sabbath day, keep it holy. And so they're instructed to do that. And so I wanna challenge us all to do that. We know that evangelical Christian people attend church by studies that are done, attend church about 1.8 times a month. Christ Pres people attend church about 2.1 times a month. So we're beating the average, kind of. <laughs> but at its base, the command to be Sabbath keepers is, is about more than just attending church. It is about attending church, but it's about more than that. It means that you are living according to the Lord's rhythm and rest, and you are yielding to him in that. So growing up, we... I did not ever fight with my parents about going to church. And we went every Sunday. And the reason I never fought with my parents about going to church was because that's what we did. <laughs> On Sunday, it would have been such a novel, it would have been like saying, let's not celebrate Christmas this year. Or, um, you know, let's not live in the house we live in now. I mean, it just, it's what we did. On Sunday mornings, we went to church. And it was just part of the rhythm. But the command is about more than what you do on Sundays, even though it is about what you do. It's about more than that. It's about willingly embracing the Lord's rhythm and rest. It means that we're trusting God enough to rest. It means that we organize our lives around a rhythm of worship more than a rhythm of work. Sabbath keeping is a way of living a life that is set apart. And it's a simple, measurable test, right, of trust and obedience. Is do I keep a Sabbath as unto the Lord? Do I trust him for that? I read a study recently that said um, Chick-fil-A has become the number three uh, fast food chain behind McDonald's and I think maybe Subway? Was that it? Or no, Starbucks. McDonald's and Starbucks and then Chick-fil-A. And Chick-fil-A is closed one day a week. So go Chick-fil-A, you're doing it. And, that, and, that, and that's awesome. Um, but there's a commitment to a rhythm and a rest and, and yielding and trusting that the, that the Lord is going to be the one to provide. So Sabbath keeping is a measure, it's a measurable way of preserving orthodoxy in our community. We obey the command and in that obedience we gather together to study God's word, which is something we need, right? We need this community, these people that we get to know by name. We get to know each other's stories. We get to know each other's struggles, each other's sorrows, each other's triumphs. 
And God's word is clear about this. Hebrews 10.25, don't forsake the assembling together. Be people, be Sabbath people, be a Sabbath community. Be present because we live in a community of people who need a place to belong. And so we're being present for that. The orthodoxy that comes from living as a people gathered under the teaching and the spirit of God's word leads us then to becoming a people who hunger to be agents of justice in this world. And one application in this pa- that this passage makes about justice-loving people is that we're a welcoming people. So on the one hand, we're holding on to orthodoxy. We're not giving that up. And yet at the same time, we're saying part of what that means is that we are an outpost of grace, of kindness, of service, of love, of counsel, of support to people in need of those things, to people who need God. And so we're a welcoming people. And specifically, God's people are to welcome in the foreigner, the outcast, the displaced one. They're to make a place in their community for former enemies, for people who want to follow the Lord, no matter what their background or their past struggles may be. The vision that this text gives for people, uh, for the people of God, is as Alex uh, Mottier writes in his commentary, he says, it's a vision of a worldwide, non-exclusive worshiping community founded on justice, Sabbath-keeping, and welcome. And so we're not trying to keep it just us, but we're walking in grateful to be here ourselves and saying anybody can get in on this. And it's nothing new, right? When God first called his people... When he first established his covenant with Abraham, what did God tell him? He said, your descendants are going to be blessed and they are going to be a blessing to the world. That was part of their calling. It was part of their identity. You will be a blessing. And from the moment God said that to his people, they have struggled to live up to that calling. We struggle still, right? Instead, then and now, what we've done instead is we've insulated, we've drawn lines around community. Sometimes we've stationed Pharisees at the doors checking theological credentials before a person can really come in and really be a part of what's happening. And I know in a room this size, and this is not a super large room, but I know in a room this size that some of you have had those credentials checked at the door and have experienced the pain of that. It's a pretty bad way for the church to conduct itself. especially when you're professing we are saved by grace through faith alone. And we've done this, and we do it sometimes in the name of of what we're just protecting and guarding doctrine. Look, guarding doctrinal fidelity is vital. (laughs) Without that, we stop being a church. But if our doctrine lived out displays contempt or disinterest for people who are different from us, then that's a doctrine we should abandon. And the reason is because as Paul told the Corinthians, if we profess and possess truth, but do not have love, all we're doing is making noise. And so that's the tension, right? It's the tension that we have to live in. (coughs) And it requires incredible humility to say, I might be wrong about some of the finer points of theology that I embrace. Right? There are 
large populations of Christians who baptize people upon credible profession of faith and believe that's the way the Lord calls people to baptize. There are large groups of Christians who baptize infants of believing parents (coughs) because they believe that's honoring to the Lord and that's what God calls us to do. We can't all be right. We can't all be right. And guess what? You may be wrong. I may be wrong. I'm going to baptize a baby in this room in a couple of weeks. I might be wrong. I don't think I am. But I'll tell you this. (coughs) Sorry. 100% of those who enter the kingdom of God do so having lived with a lot of bad theology in tow. We got some things wrong. We're saved by grace through faith. So that's the tension, right? We want to be biblically faithful. We want to pursue justice. We want to welcome the stranger, the refugee, and the eunuch. The eunuch? You saw that, right? This passage talks about eunuchs. What are they? Isaiah doesn't clearly specify, but we we know (coughs) some of what this means. Eunuchs were men who were intentionally emasculated through mutilation to render them impotent servants for the wealthy. So you can imagine this being a contingent of people, especially in a war-torn area, where they find themselves with no place to be. Because where they used to be is now in ruin. And the people they used to serve are no longer wealthy or in power or alive. And they've come to believe in God. Where do they go? And God is telling Israel, you welcome them. You welcome them. These who are sexually other in their culture. Do not let those whose lives are marked by sexual struggle or otherness and want to follow the Lord regard themselves as a dry tree. That's what Isaiah says. Rootless, fruitless. Instead, welcome them. Care for them. Include them. Why? On what grounds? On the grounds that God welcomes them. He's clear about this. I'm going to read Isaiah 56, 4 and 5. We just read it. To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose the things that please me and hold fast to my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them. I'll give them an everlasting name that will not be cut off. We may not know eunuchs, but we live in a culture filled with all kinds of broken sexuality and broken hearts. Orientations, decisions, pasts, ongoing struggles. And many want to live as followers of Jesus And no one in this room has a simple story. And God is saying to his people, welcome them. And this is going to be challenging. Orthodoxy, welcome. 
fidelity to Scripture, welcome. So we have our work cut out for us. Isaiah 56, 8. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. Orthodoxy and welcome. This is our call as a church. This passage is audacious, right? It, there's audacity here because this is people who have been through the ringer. Israel has not just skated through. They've suffered. They're broken. They've experienced exile, defeat at the hands of nations who mock their God. And they've suffered much. They've wandered far. And God tells them, as you regroup, welcome the foreigner and the outcast. Welcome those who want to follow me. Teach them how. Put away contempt, bigotry, hatred, face outward in love because for them welcome is the way through. This passage is about so much more than just the restoration of Jerusalem. This passage to Israel is, is not the Lord saying, as I'm rebuilding this city that you love, here's how I want you to carry yourself. It's about a coming kingdom made of people from every tribe and tongue and nation. It's a kingdom to which believers belong and about which we've been called to bear witness. It's a kingdom whose citizens have a better name than son or daughter. We're given an eternal name by the Lord himself, meaning we're fully known, we're fully loved, we're accepted, and we're not turned away. In this world, we will have trouble. And the Lord will bring into our lives people who have trouble and many hearing these words come from places where in your own life you fell into ruin or you came uncomfortably close and desperately close. And many of you came to hear the gospel in a new way because of that brokenness and a hope was reborn. And God in his wisdom here is he's saying to us, I'm calling you to live as agents of grace and hope and renewal in this world of welcome. He doesn't need us for this. And yet he calls us to this which is a call to humility. He calls us to be examples of humility. And when that fails, to be confessors of repentance. And so I pray that we would never waste the incredible honor of being a welcoming voice into the arms of Christ for those who are looking for a place to belong. And that we would stay faithful, we would stay faithful to the Lord and his word and the rhythm of God in this process and that our legacy as a church as we continue to grow, as we continue to mature, as our relationships continue to deepen, that our legacy as a church would be where we would be people who welcomed and walked with those who suffered as fellow strugglers and that our testimony would be that we delight in this, that we delight in the welcoming, renewing grace of Christ, which is extended even to people like us. Pray with me. Lord, your word is living and active and challenging and beautiful. And there's always something that strikes me as we read passages that where you talk about having other sheep that are not of this fold and welcoming in the foreigner and the eunuch and the outcast.
that we can, we can so easily assume ourselves to be natural born insiders welcoming in outsiders when in fact we ourselves are people who have been welcomed in. We're people who find our standing before you because of your grace and because of your welcome and because of your kindness. And so Lord, let us not forget that. Let us not be people who assume the posture that we're just entitled to all that you give, but that we are astonished recipients of it. And may that be the way that we love others. Father, I pray that you would deepen our culture of invitation and hospitality. And I thank you for the ways that you have already made that such a rich quality of this particular congregation. We're thankful, Lord, for your kindness to us. It's in your name we pray. Amen. As we prepare to come to the Lord's table, uh, let's read this catechism of sorts together as a way to prepare ourselves. What right do we have to dine at the table of Jesus? As children of God, through faith in Jesus, we have every right to dine at his table. What do we mean by this? We mean that Jesus came not for the strong, but for the weak. Not for the righteous, but for sinners. Not for the self-sufficient, but for those who know they need rescue. To all who are weary and need rest. <clears throat> to all who mourn and long for comfort. To all who feel worthless and wonder if God even cares. To all who are weak and frail and desire strength. To all who sin and need a savior. Jesus welcomes into his circle, adopts into his family, and reserves a place at his table, for he is the mighty friend of sinners, the ally of his enemies, the defender of the indefensible, and the justifier of those who have no excuses left.